Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Super excited. Today I got Marco Santori. He's the chief legal officer of Kraken. Um, and we're going to unpack some of the recent developments in crypto regulatory and banking. So Marco, how you doing? Bully, I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Good. You know, I've, uh, I've been a fan of yours a long time, admired your work um, all the way back when I started in, in 2016, um, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. <laughs> and then, um, I guess, you know, I've followed your career as, as it's developed during that time as well. So I'm super excited to have you. Thanks for, thanks for joining. No, thanks for having me. This is great. So, you know, one thing I always sort of start out with, with my guests is that classic crypto podcast question about how you got into crypto yourself. I find everyone's sort of personal stories interesting. I know you've been in the space for ages, um, but just curious, like how, how you originally stumbled on it. I got scammed. I got, uh, I got, I got scammed and it goes to show you like what kind of person I am that I got scammed. And of course that like immediately <laughs> attracted me to find out more. Turn around uh, and devote your career to it then. <laughs> yeah. It's do it total 180 from being a, a commercial litigator to, um, to turning to financial services, regulatory mm-hmm. work. But I, I bought a butterfly labs, Bitcoin miner. Mm. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a special vintage of crypto person that, um, got scammed by butterfly labs. You can sort of, uh, you, you can peg the vintage of, uh, a crypto person by like what, what scam defined them for some <laughs> people. It was, it was Mount, Mount Gox and some people it was, uh, for me, at least it was butterfly labs. They were a company that was selling the first ASICs. Um, well, not the first, but the first like retail ASIC miners in a box um, with the promise of, you know, a little plastic box with a power plug and an ethernet cable. And you just plug it into the wall and money comes out. And I had no idea what Bitcoin was except for that. I said, well, I can turn electricity into money as well as anybody else. Um, and so I, I paid them like $500 and I bought the very first uh, retail available Bitcoin or yeah, Bitcoin miner from uh, Butterfly Labs. And they said it'd be a few weeks for delivery because it was you know, still on the boat um, over here. Uh, and that was fine. It gave me a little bit of chance to research, but then weeks and weeks passed. And um, in the interim uh, of, of like, while I was being scammed, I started posting to Bitcoin Talk. And you can still go on the Bitcoin Talk forums and see like all my posts on there. They're, they're so cringeworthy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, hi, my name's Marco and I'm learning about Bitcoin. There was no crypto back then. It was, you know, just, it was just Bitcoin. Sure. Um, and 
um, there was no law on this. Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm a lawyer and I'm interested in learning more about this stuff. And, you know, tell me about your Bitcoin experiences. And um, it was, I think that, I think I posted a Bitcoin talk just after the very first guidance came out in 2013. And um, it was March, March 18th of, 20, of 2013, if I recall correctly. And it was, uh, you know, it was sort of this starting gunshot for the industry, um, which is a title of some talks I gave early on uh, about Bitcoin and the law and how there was so little of it. But it's was evolved that, since then considerably, hasn't it? Yeah. Was that the FinCEN guidance you're talking about? That's right. Yeah. The very first uh, bit of government speaking on Bitcoin. Sure. Um, and shortly, shortly thereafter, uh, mostly in response to the overwhelming um, negative reception, the overwhelmingly negative reception that FinCEN got, uh, they reached out to the Bitcoin Foundation. And by then I was, uh, I had joined the foundation and um, I was the uh, was the regulatory affairs committee chair, um, and the only voice for for Bitcoin um, in policy. Uh, and it's it's thanks to the efforts of the Bitcoin Foundation in its early days that this stuff is not um, illegal. Mm -hmm. Frankly, uh, when we were called down to D.C., you know, we didn't know whether we should bring our own lawyers. Or not, um, but we gave a we gave a presentation to a room full of every single uh, federal agency that would have any potential interest uh, in Bitcoin: IRS, CIA, FBI, CFPB, obviously FinCEN. The main Treasury folks were there. Comptroller of the currency. Um, I mean, you name it. Everybody was in that room or represented in that room, and it was going over a lot of people's heads. Then they weren't. And it wasn't because it was so complex. It was just because they weren't sure how seriously to take it. These are smart people, but you know they're bombarded with important things every day. And here come um, the first Bitcoin people they'd ever seen in their lives. And they, I think they were just shocked to see we were wearing suits. <laughs> you know, they had expected neck beards and pink tutus and you know neck and face tattoos and stuff. And they got. Um, just like a, some pretty normal, like some extra normal lawyer people. Um, sure. And that, I think that set the tone in a very fundamental way for the conversation that was to occur over the next few years. Yeah. And so uh, how, how did it evolve then? I know, you know, you were involved in the Delaware blockchain initiative and um, obviously active representing clients at, uh, I believe you're at Cooley and, so were you sort of working on the policy stuff in tandem with that? Or was it, did you sort of switch then to more of the private practice side? Um, I always did both. I always, I always did both because it's, 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 it's still like this. It's still very new compared to most uh, financial regulatory regimes. So the work that lawyers do isn't just, okay, here's the law. This is what you need to do on these facts as the law applies to the facts. It's, it's not that simple. It's not like straightforward sort of operational compliance work. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, we weren't even to the point of interpretation because there were no laws on point back then. Um, and there really are still quite, quite few now. Um, but back then it, it really was just a question of 
how well you could advocate for your position. And that advocacy didn't always happen in, in courtrooms. It, it did happen in courtrooms. I, I actually, I litigated the first Bitcoin mining case in the Southern District of New York. Um, but by far the overwhelming majority of it happened at the policy level where you were going to regulators and saying, and you know, trying to close the knowledge gap because this stuff was so new. Mm -hmm. uh, and now those very same regulators have very deep institutional knowledge uh, at FinCEN um, and at SEC in particular, but mm -hmm. that wasn't always the case. In the early stages, it was just a question of you know, who could be the best and most effective conduit of information in both directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember representing clients in 2016 and you'd speak with like state regulators even about sort of simple payment stuff. And some of them were like, wait, now what are you talking about? And I think that part of a lawyer's job from a regulatory point of view can often be, I guess, education to some extent and, you know, showing them how the tech works and then applying it to the existing sort of regulatory framework. Are you finding in, and we'll get to your current role in a second, but I imagine a lot of what you do on the day to day is, dealing with, with regulators, do you find that, I mean, I, I suppose you sort of alluded to this, but it seems that their sort of knowledge of the technology has increased dramatically over the last couple of years. Yeah, it, it really has. Um, and there's been hits and misses. Like you, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, um, Delaware and the Delaware blockchain initiative. So we accomplished quite a bit there and we can, we can talk about it that in the context of what's happening in Wyoming and how Wyoming is really taken the baton for, uh, from um, sort of a spiritual successor uh, mm -hmm. to a lot of what we were trying to do there. Um, but yeah, the, it, the regulators of today um, are still uneven in terms of, um, in terms of understanding and uh, appreciation of implications and things like that. Um, but the high watermark is much, much higher. Uh, there, there are regulators now who, in virtue of, you know, sending out blanket subpoenas to the whole industry, um, in some cases, have this bird's eye view that each of the individual attorneys and the individual lawyers don't even have. Mm -hmm. And like the outside counsel who, who have, you know, 30 clients that are in a particular space, like, like I used to have when I was in private practice, those folks have tremendous visibility into what's going on in the industry. Whereas it's actually one of the things that I miss about what I do now. Mm -hmm. I get to focus sure on some very specific issues, but I don't have that bird's eye view that um, outside counsel has had for a long time. And the regulators um, also get in virtue um, of their work. Yeah. And it's even harder in sort of the COVID days, I suppose, too, because you can't like get to conferences and, you know, meet folks face-to-face -face and chat about what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a different world for sure. And you get information, um, you come across new information differently. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the Delaware blockchain initiative. I know, you know, you guys were suggesting certain, um, I suppose, updates to the, the code to allow for, um, certain blockchain technologies, I, if I recall correctly, one was like allowing tokenized securities to be recognized by Delaware law. Was, 
was sort of the idea just helping Delaware as sort of the capital of corporate America just update their statutes and regulations to account for this new technology? Was that sort of the basic gist of it? Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's right. So Delaware uh, has this is, I mean, what, about a million, I think less than a million uh, people living mm-hmm. in it. But, you know, every single Fortune 500 company has some office there. Maybe not every single, but, you know, a, a, a tremendous number of um of the of the world's most successful companies are based in Delaware. At least that's where their domicile is or their state of incorporation. And so, um, if you wanted to uh, affect the way that these companies could do business legally, that was the place to start. It actually wasn't in Washington D.C. It was in it was in Delaware, and I, I think it still it remains in Delaware. Although Wyoming now, as I said, is has given Delaware a run for its money in that regard. Um, but you know the 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 Delaware blockchain initiative um, was uh, was a success. I it, looking back on it, we could have done so much more, but uh, you know we were just limited by um, the political realities of the time. And sure. we uh, the effort uh, was initiated by um, Andrea Tignano, actually, who was uh, the blockchain Zarina of the state of Delaware. Uh, and with her help, we um, spent a lot of time with uh, the governor's office um, and also uh, with uh, the Delaware uh, Corporation Council, um, mm-hmm. which is with the corporate law council, I should say. And um, we did in fact develop a new uh, set of amendments to the DGC, to the Delaware General Corporation Law, that allowed um, corporations to rely on the contents of a blockchain as their books and records, mm-hmm. which is, which was a, a massive leap forward for um, for the advent of tokenized securities, and with after a lot of hard work and a lot of hard thinking that was actually adopted by the legislature and signed into law. So that is now law in the state of Delaware. Um, we didn't get everything done though, that we wanted to do in Delaware. Um, and a lot of what we were able to do uh, was thanks to the help uh, of Caitlin Long, who um, joined uh, one of my clients who was helping to spearhead the effort. And, I think we were all kind of frustrated by the end of this. There was just so much more headroom, so much more that we could have done, but we had to pull back near the end just there was a, there was a change of, um, there was a, there was a change of leadership in Delaware and the project sort of went dormant, although the new law still exists and companies have used it. But, um, you know, time passes and um, Caitlin um, took this idea back to Wyoming and that and form the Wyoming Blockchain Task Force. And that's how, you know, that's sort of the beginning of the next chapter of, of, of what Kraken and I and Caitlin and uh, a lot of very talented, uh, passionate people are doing in the state of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when Caitlin really got that up and running. Um, maybe this was a few years ago now. It seems like every month they'd pass a new like law or set of laws. And then there'd be a Forbes article and it'd be like, Wyoming just passed these 10 new laws. And then the next year it'd be like, Wyoming passed 12 new laws. And it's just incredible the pace 
at which they're moving there to establish themselves as really sort of the dominant blockchain location in the United States and arguably maybe even the world. So it, I do have to, yeah, hats off to, to Caitlin and her folks for really pushing the needle and Absolutely. getting Absolutely. a lot done. We, um, you know, we owe a lot to her and her efforts. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I may be biased, but when, when, I, when I see that uh, a jurisdiction is passing a bunch of new laws about crypto and doing a bunch of crypto stuff, it's easy. It's, it's really easy to be cynical about yeah. that and say, oh, well, of course, there's some like small jurisdiction that's trying to um, I don't know, race to the bottom with their, with their regulation just to attract business. And so you see that. You see that in like Malta or Gibraltar so some, and then a lot of the offshore jurisdictions. Um, and you don't think much of it. What really impresses me about Wyoming is how thoughtfully they've done it and um, how they have turned what looks like the sort of rapid pace of ink spilling into a, actually, a, 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 uh, I think the, the, the world's foremost supervisory regime. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are using, um, they are using blockchain technology to regulate blockchain technology companies, which is, um, that's how you're supposed to do it, right? You're, you're, people talk about reg tech, they talk about smart, um, you know, smart, uh, smart regulation. And this is something, something that the regulatory lawyers here at conferences all the time where very important people pat themselves on the back about how well they're doing and regulating their jurisdictions. But um, it's very rare that you actually see it uh, in practice. And so far it's been, it's been wildly successful. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you know, we're starting to see the fruits of all of those changes and labors, um, like, you know, obviously the, the banking charter. So let's, let's talk first about your sort of transition in-house um, and to, to Kraken in particular. So it's been, what, a year and a half? I'm not sure. How long has it been since you made the jump to Kraken? Uh, it's been two uh, hundred, two hundred years. No, it it, <laughs> it, it, it feels <laughs> it feels like I've been there a lifetime. Um, sure, been here a lifetime. Uh, the I was, uh, gosh, I guess I joined officially in um, April, so it's okay. about ten months. Oh wow, huh. yeah, it does seem longer. I guess time it's sort of dog years in crypto. <laughs> it's like every week's like a year in traditional finance. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So how's it been? How's the sort of transition gone? Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear, you know, just how life at Kraken is. Um, I, I think it's exceptional. It's exceptionally well-suited um, to the business that the company does. So it's a, it's a very smart, very principled team, um, which you see actually quite a bit in crypto. And, and, and we're, you know, it's a, where it's sort of, uh, when it's, it's called it, a, it's an embarrassment of riches uh, in that sense, that there really are a lot of smart, passionate people in crypto that are trying to build businesses, but not all of them are as practical as Kraken and Kraken's leadership. Um, they, when it, when it comes, and that's particularly the case when it comes to regulation and compliance, Kraken has, uh, bar none, the finest compliance team I've seen in my career in crypto. 
Yeah, I'm sure they're busy too. I'm sure there's all sorts of requests that are constantly incoming. Absolutely. We publish a transparency report every year that explains just how busy our compliance team is. And this is setting aside the legal team that I'm building. Mm -hmm. um, the compliance team is, um, is uh, just fanatical about, about what they do. Um, and they're very well suited for it. You know, you see a lot of sort of, uh, you see these two extremes a lot. You see the pearl clutching ex-regulator who comes into a crypto company and is assaulted by risk on all sides and just cannot handle it. And so locks everything down and says no constantly. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you see a lot uh, of sort of cowboys and cowgirls who um, have been maybe been in crypto for so long that they think they can they can push the envelope uh, and they don't know it's broken until they get an enforcement action. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you see people with incredibly high risk tolerances. Um, and what's impressed me about Kraken's compliance team is that it's really um, it's really right in the middle. They're, they're, they're very practical. They're very practical. They don't clutch pearls, but at the same time, they don't lock everything down and say, no, you can't do that. Um, and it's a, it's a philosophy that I've, uh, that I've tried to replicate in the legal team that I'm building now, Kraken. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto savvy taxpayers are using Node 40 to determine the taxes they owe or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node 40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node 40 in your corner. With Node 40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. Planning to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin? What if I told you that you could win a Tesla just by trading Bitcoin? Well, now you can with the crypto.com app. Crypto.com is giving away four Teslas. Four. To enter the lucky draw, download the Crypto.com app and buy at least 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin before March 8th. If you're new to Crypto.com, you'll also enjoy 0% credit and debit card fees in your first month. Increase your chances of winning by applying for the Crypto.com Visa card, which gives you up to 8% cash back, along with rebates for your Spotify, Netflix, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. More details can be found in the show notes. Download the Crypto.com app and good luck. Hey guys, one of our sponsors, Gemini, just launched a new product called Earn. It allows you to earn interest daily on your cryptos just by holding them there. And the rates are insane. Some cryptos pay as high as 7.4% annually. Try getting that interest rate at your bank. There's no minimum balance and no fees for transferring it in or out. And it's also available to all U.S. customers and supports up to 26 different cryptocurrencies. And while you're at it, make sure to check out Gemini's Exchange. You can open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash bully. And if you use my ref link, you can get $10 in Bitcoin after you've traded $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com slash bully. Thanks. 
you know, it's interesting from at least an outside perspective, all the kind of big personalities that reside at crack. And I mean, Jesse is obviously a well-known figure in the, in the industry. I just had on um, the author of out of the ether on my podcast a few weeks ago, which is the story of sort of how Ethereum was born. Um, and part of the story is that uh, Vitalik wrote the Ethereum white paper while he was staying with Jesse at his apartment. And I just thought <laughs> it was like such a cool image. I don't know why it just stuck with me thinking about like these just kind of like Titans now, but back in, I guess this is 2014, 2015, you know, it was just a couple dudes in an apartment in San Francisco, like writing a, an interesting paper and, you know, working on setting up an exchange. And so it's from sort of these humble roots are born these, really big personalities and then you you know you obviously have you and pierre and dan held and sort of all of these uh, folks who are just big personalities in the space is it i'd be here curious to hear your thoughts on what it's like you know working with those folks on a day-to-day -day basis yeah I, I you're absolutely right i mean there there are some very big personalities um at crack and thankfully i think we're all really lashed together by um a singular belief in the in the future that what we're doing can really build, and it's a very positive one. And so, a lot of the um, minor disagreements that come up, and differences of thought, and intellectual debates that happen, it's always secondary to that, and it feels secondary to that, which is which is really important. It's really important that that there is something bigger that you're all working toward, whether. Um, whether you're uh, a well-known maximalist or um, whether you believe that, you know, a thousand tokens will blossom, bloom and change the world. Um, we, we're all kind of in the rising tide raises all ships phase, which is a really important force to bring uh, to bring all of these all of these usually very disparate opinions together. Um, and uh, Kraken is a great place to do it, primarily because we're, you know, it's just a different philosophy on um, how to build a business, right? There, we, there are differences between us and Coinbase and Gemini and all the other exchanges that you might see, and that they've all sort of uniformly tried to reach what they believe to be up and out of crypto. The, the, the dregs of crypto. I think a lot of those companies feel like crypto people are sort of beneath them and they want to pull from Wall Street and they see that they chase that uh, pedigree. And that's just not something that Kraken has really done. Um, they, they haven't just defaulted to the belief the belief that if you can get somebody from a big Wall Street bank, they're going to just uniformly and objectively be better than um, the person who came up in crypto. Um, and I think that that's a belief that really does permeate a lot of the larger exchanges. And it's not just Wall Street. It's also pulling from major federal regulators and things like that. We have ex-federal regulators on our, uh, on our team, but they're not like the concept of that pedigree isn't fetishized here at Kraken. And I, that informs a lot of our recruitment. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to ask you a hard question here. What, what is your own personal opinion 
on sort of the the maximalism ethereum multi-token debate are you would you consider yourself in any camp or are you just agnostic um you know lawyers are always trying to be as trans <laughs> you know, trying to be like a transparent layer to their clients beliefs and sure um and i and i'm 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 guilty of that we're you know we're always trying to be chameleons in that sense uh but no personally i i am not a maximalist i am i am the opposite of a maximalist i think that the maximalist view is myopic um mm -hmm. and it it sort of willfully ignores um use cases for new technologies and it 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 really does just baffle me um that somebody can be so narrowly focused on a digital gold narrative that mm -hmm. um, all this all the, all this other stuff that's that's happening and really happening um just not for them it it's just baffling that that, that could, they could be so dismissive of that and i've had these conversations with the maximalists in our camp and they're always well they're not always respectful because we know each other so well it does, you know we don't have to call each other sir and madam um but um yeah, I, it, I, I, I remain baffled by the maximalist mm -hmm. position. I just, I just don't see it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm right there with you. And, you know, I, well, I will say that like Dan and Pierre and I have had public disagreements, <laughs> so that's no secret. Um, but I, I, I think I'm with you that, and now I, I made this point a few weeks ago now that Bitcoin is almost like, it's almost different. It's almost like it's become like a different asset class, really. And it's almost doing its own thing. Like Ethereum and Bitcoin are really different assets. You know, the digital gold narrative that you mentioned, but Ethereum sort of off doing this smart contract DeFi stuff. So it's sort of like comparing gold and Tesla. It's like, well, I, I don't know what the point of comparing those are when it's apples and oranges, other than that, you know, you're competing for attention in a limited environment. Um, well, well, you have a, you have like a, a unique perspective on this, maybe not unique, but certainly rare um, that you're uh, a lawyer and a trader, right? Mm -hmm. So that's certainly not something I am. I don't, I don't trade crypto. I, I work for an exchange. I don't, I'm not sitting there placing like straddle orders and whatever chart drawing lines on charts like like you guys do I, maybe you don't do that but um yeah I, I don't like i don't have that like i have conviction in certain things and and but i don't like trade every day um and so you actually have to put your money where your mouth is and i <laughs> like i said i am a transparent conduit for my client and so uh i think your perspective has got to be better than mine on this yeah, I, I don't know. I may I mean maybe if anything that clouds my perspective because I own I have my own sort of personal biases and um, things like that. But yeah, is no. That called, I, is that called bags? Uh, yeah, yeah. Your, your bags. <laughs> my bags, sure. Yeah, and, yeah you know, the, I, the Twitter, I, crypto Twitter taught me about rare Pepe's. Oh day. right, yes, I, I, just, I saw that. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, it just I awakened some dark, some some ancient evil. <laughs> it's really extraordinary how many are out there too it seems like people have like thousands of these cartoons for any sort of emotion or occasion yeah. <laughs> i'll i'll figure it out i'll it'll be two years three years late but i'll figure it out <laughs>
Sure. I'm sure there's like uh, NFTs in process that are being developed to <laughs> emulate Pepe's. And I actually think a long time ago, there was like a rare Pepe collection of NFTs. But um, well, <laughs> I don't want to get too far off track here. Um, so, you know, you're at Kraken. The Wyoming regulators announced that they're allowing this sort of special charter was it was it your intention from the beginning to engage with that or were you did you like come in and inherit that or i'm just sort of curious how that got decided and then how it evolved within kraken to decide okay let's let's actually go out and become a bank yeah it's a good question um and it started uh, before I got to Kraken. Um, Kraken actually had the foresight, the management team here had the foresight to see, uh, they saw the possibilities here, what a, a real bank with a state charter um, could accomplish in the United States. Not, 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 not just to solve regulatory problems, but also to provide um, just a better UX for users. Um, and uh, it started at least at least a year, maybe more, uh, before I got to Kraken. Um, and one of the reasons Kraken brought me on is they had gotten to a point in the process where um, they you know they really needed somebody to manage the legal end of it. Um, and the team, the legal team that was here before was doing their best and but it was it was not big enough it needed to be grown um and that's part of what i've done now since uh since i've been there and we and we continue to do so if you're a lawyer listening uh please head to kraken.com check out our jobs posting we're hiring a lot of lawyers we're trying to double in size this year um and what's the what's the current number uh there are 11 of us now awesome and so so you came in, sort of inherited this process, and you were tasked with getting it over the goal line. You'd obviously achieved that. What what was that, I guess, discussion like? Was it just sort of like tying up regulatory inquiries to satisfy them, to get them to a point where they were going to issue this? Or was it more like you're sitting in meetings explaining how the institution would work, or I, I'm just sort of curious. I, I know you're sort of bound by some confidentiality and attorney-client privilege, so don't reveal any of that. But I, if there's anything you can share about the process, I'd be interested to hear about it from sort of the outside perspective. Yeah, um, I'll I'll tell you what I can. The so the work that was in front of us when I came on board was um, finalizing. Um, finalizing the application process, which included uh, preparing directors and officers for uh, pretty serious interviews by the state regulators um, and advocating for, um, for the company and for the bank and for its business model before the Wyoming State Banking Board which is um, not a regulatory process. That is, a, that is as much a political, well, it is a regulatory process, but it's as much of a political process as it is a regulatory process. And it culminated ultimately 
um, with um, us presenting, uh, making our case in a, in a contested case fashion with plaintiff and, uh, or <laughs> we call it a plaintiff and defendant, um, where uh, we got up in courtroom style and gave an opening statement. In, uh, we cross-examined witnesses or we examined witnesses. We redirected some witnesses, uh, gave a closing statement. Um, it was very, it, it, it was like you would see on Law & Order if, if you're not a lawyer. Um, and uh, we had to structure our case and we flew out to Wyoming to do that. Spent quite a bit of time there. Ultimately, we did succeed and um, the banking board unanimously granted our, um, our application uh, and awarded us our, uh, awarded us our charter. So now um, the, the work ahead of us is um, just as much regulatory as it was before, but we got to build the products and product creation, product ideation is not like, it's not just an engineering effort. It is an effort that requires product counsel. Um, and my lawyers are in with the product team in their meetings. They don't hold a separate meeting to like, read in the lawyers, lawyers are there in ensconced in situ with the product teams developing these products in a way that we want to be compliant uh, with local and federal laws. That's, that's, that's the role uh, of the regulatory lawyer in that, in that, in that, in that process. Uh, and so that work is still ahead of us. So is, is the bank now, I guess we'll just call it the bank, um, is that a completely separate entity then from Kraken Exchange? And is that it sort is. of the structure? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a separate entity. Um, and uh, it'll be the entity that services, um, that services most U.S. persons. I mean, we'll, we still have kinks to work out all that, but um, at some point, it'll be that entity that is um, that is a, a bank that that provides services um, to users, so that users will be able to see their um, will be able to see their U.S. dollar deposits in a checking account, in a savings account, uh, right next to their um, custodial deposits of crypto um, in a seamless fashion, just like you would if you were at, you know, Charles Schwab or any of the other large uh, prime brokers or RIAs, uh, investment advisors. Gotcha. So that's really the, I guess, advantage from sort of the user customer side is that instead of having like, okay, you open your bank account and then you open your exchange and you're sort of, you have to ACH money between them. Instead, you just have kind of a one-stop shop then where you can have checks or you could have a debit card or a savings account and then also just be able to fund your trading account on Kraken. Precisely. And it would be even more seamless than that. So um, right now we don't, right now we have to rely on third-party banks, um, which as you know, you have to wire money into Kraken if you're in the U.S. If you're outside of the U.S., there's... SEPA and uh, all the rest. Um, and relying on those third-party banks, the, our, our banking partners have been terrific, but they're struggling against their own limitations. 
particularly around risk and banking in industry that is classified as high risk. Um, what the bank, what our own bank allows us to do is eliminate that um, intermediary uh, to the point where when you start a new job and you write down your direct deposit information, you'll just have your deposits, you'll just have your paycheck deposited directly into your Kraken account. Now, that's not to say you're going to go off and buy, you know, the latest exotic altcoin with it. Um, but we will be your bank. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of, it takes a second for me to get my head around just as somebody who's involved in the space and has been for some time, you just sort of get used to that model. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious too. I had this written down the sort of state versus federal issues. And I think about this a lot when, you know, I see Wyoming going out and doing this stuff. Um, has there been, I mean, I'm sure there's been, but I'm just sort of curious about your point of view on like the tension between, you know, the OCC and the, the federal regulator as, and then being a, a state chartered bank. Um, has there been any discussion about how federal rules could apply to like the state charter that was received from Wyoming, or is it just assumed that that, you know, gives you some level of protection once you're chartered at the state level? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it's, um, it's really a category of questions that we, um, that we wrestle with uh, constantly mm -hmm. um, and that are under constant discussion, obviously internally, but, all, uh, but also with, federal regulators and state regulators um, in pretty much every new product decision we make. Um, that's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a very important conversation to have because it is so far reaching because the question of, um, of uh, federal versus state law is one that even, you know, the courts wrestle with daily. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I, I would say that the, States, the state charters and federal charters have long coexisted and they will continue to coexist. One will not be better than the other. Um, the, there have been, uh, there's really a flurry of activity at the federal level in terms of chartering new banks or just trust banks, for example, which aren't full banks um, and wouldn't have say access to Fedwire. They wouldn't have a Fedmaster account. Um, but otherwise can um, rely on the federal supremacy so that they don't have to uh, abide by state licensing rules, for example. Um, you know, there are, there are pros and cons to each approach, but it's definitely, there's definitely no hierarchy. There's, yes, um, what is it? Uh, state Street is a state bank. Um, it is a state charter bank. That doesn't, just because it's State Street, right, doesn't make it better than a federal bank and all, all these tiny little federal banks are out there. But really, it's State Street that's the massive custodian, and they should be considered, um, you know, top of the pile. And it doesn't work the other way either. Um, so these kinds of questions come up in not just banking context, but also um, because the laws are so interrelated. Whenever we want to launch a new product, um, whether it's a question about securities custody or how we can service commodity derivatives. Those are, those are all tied up in this question of 
oh, this is a brand new charter. What can it do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it must be it must be daunting to have somebody, you know, bring a new product idea or a new listing or a new, I guess, you know, crypto moves so fast too. You're seeing all of these novel kind of DeFi uh, yield pools and all sorts of stuff just developing in real time in front of us. And then, you know, I'm sure the product and sales team are like, well, we want to build this out. So from the legal point of view, then I guess you're left being like, okay, well, we have our banking charter to think about. We have all of the federal regulators to consider. We have state money transmission laws. We have, you know, a thousand different regulatory obligations. And so we have to go through that analysis on each one. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm just sort of thinking through how, how it must be particularly difficult to to be in those product meetings and to juggle all of those regulatory obligations. I, you know, you put your finger on it. I really, I really truly believe that crypto lawyers, whether they're in private practice, whether they're in-house like me, or whether they're in the government and they're regulators, we are in a class of our own. Like I, I say that with full self-awareness of, <laughs> how it sounds, but having lived this in, I've never been a, a, a regulator, um, but you know, I've got two out of three boxes checked and having lived both of those boxes, I can tell you the sheer uh, amount of contradictory information that has to get synthesized and the pressure that it's put under to produce a workable product, um, a commercially viable thing um, is immense and unpre- maybe not unprecedented, but certainly in recent history, this is the most complex set of problems any financial services lawyer has ever had to work with. Um, and whether you're at the SEC and you're a lawyer, whether you're um, at a state at a state money transmitter um, authority, a state bank supervisor, and the lawyer or whether you're in-house or at a big firm, it doesn't matter. Having to think about and consider and anticipate all of the, the many knock-on effects of your decisions, um, that's just not something that exists for the white shoe securitization lawyer that's been securitizing the same asset for the last 20 years. And yeah, this lawyer is probably financially comfortable and gets a lot of respect and in big law and as a master of his or her craft, but it's just, it's just a different world. Just, it's just a different world of uncertainty that you have to be comfortable in. Yeah, no, it's true. It's uh, everything changes so fast and there's so much uncertainty that it's hard to give like solid, well, not solid, but definitive advice, right. In, in, in such a uncertain regulatory landscape, you know, I was talking with Haley Lennon a few weeks ago about, her sort of transition. I think she was in crypto maybe a little after you or about the same time. And she started with Silvergate Bank. Um, and back then no one could get a bank account in crypto. You know, like most crypto companies struggled to even get basic banking services. And now it's like you guys are setting up and getting your own banks established in the crypto space. Your own bank, right? Yeah, it's really it's really an incredible evolution over the course of four, five, six years. Um, 
I'd just be curious to hear sort of your reflections on that being in, in the space so long, and then maybe what you think we're in store for, for the next. Um, I think that we are, at least in the U.S., um, really sort of teed up for comprehensive regulation of um, exchanges uh, in crypto. I think that uh, that's going to be a really good thing in a lot of ways and a really bad thing in a lot of other ways. Um, you know, you can be libertarian about it and say, well, it's just bad because the government is coming in and telling the free market what to do. And then you can be sort of um, a, a more pragmatic about it. Um, say, well, it was bound to happen. Um, so, so now what, how do we deal with it? And I fall into the latter camp. Um, and I, I got to tell you, I, I think we're, if it's ever going to happen now is um, not the worst time. Um, I think we're going to get uh, an SEC chairman that uh, really gets it. Um, and we're going, we, we may very well also have a CFTC chairman that really gets it. Um, and if there's ever going to be a comprehensive set of rules and regulations that um, are not so discordant, now is the time to get it done. We might not like the outcome because it's just, gosh darn it, it's not as, a, it's not as free a market as it used to be. Um, and I respect that, I do. Uh, but speaking practically, it can bring a lot of good things as well. Right, uh, comprehensive and forward-thinking regulation around um, what is a security in the U.S. is something that um, certainly your vintage of crypto people have been struggling with since you first got into crypto. We didn't yeah. have these questions in 2013. The SEC was trying to trace funds flows on Bitcoin to you know prevent Bitcoin to 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 arrest Bitcoin scammers. They weren't even like on the scene then in terms of asserting primary jurisdiction over, over these assets themselves. Now, of course, it is the defining question of, like I said, of your, of your vintage, the 2016 crew. Um, and it is very much um, still the defining question. If we can get an answer to that that isn't crazy, even if it's more restrictive, if it isn't crazy, um, we're going to see this industry and the community blossom into something we haven't seen before. We'll see um, a new path to um, issuing new tokens. Um, people don't do ICOs anyway, anymore in the US. We will probably see a Bitcoin ETF because there will be secondary market surveillance in place. Um, we will see uh, unprecedented growth in this space. Um, so yes, we, we will all have principled objections to whatever comes out, um, but to think it's not coming is, I mean, well, if you're a lawyer and you don't think it's coming, you're just, you're just not doing your job. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I have a lot of friends who are like, I wanna buy crypto, but like, I don't wanna send my money somewhere and then wake up and it's gone. <laughs> and like, 
Yeah. There's so much uncertainty, um, both from a regulatory as well as just like a security point of view that I agree with you that some sensible sort of overarching regulation that makes it easy for businesses to sort of have one front door regulator they walk through and, you know, work with to ensure that they have proper controls and safeguards in place, consumer protection and um, monitoring of bad behavior and OFAC rules and things like that. I mean, all of those things are important and should be part of a broader compliance program at an exchange. And then if, if it's easy to work with the regulators, I think that's a win for everyone, consumers, business folks, and, and regulators alike. So I, I, I'm, I probably share the pragmatic view with you on that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, obviously lawyers love saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I actually, I, I think we're on the precipice of it. I think it'll happen in this administration. All the, all the pieces are in place. Um, and I'm really excited about it. At the same time, you have to recognize um, the drawbacks and the drawbacks. I'm sorry. I have to put on a cynical hat here. They're, it's going to be really, really bad for the smaller exchanges. Mm-hmm exceptionally bad for the smaller exchanges. They will not be able to compete. It will, it will entrench the larger exchanges with massive compliance departments and the ability to spend money on expensive lawyers. Um, it will be really actually exceptionally good for those companies um, and exceptionally bad for anybody seeking to enter the market. Um, it will close off competition and close innovation, more so in this industry than in any other. Because this always happens with regulation. Regulation uh, is a barrier to entry by design and by definition. uh, And it creates a regulatory moat for entrenched interests um, in practice. But usually, a lot of that has already happened in the market. And the regulation comes in and just takes as much of a descriptive approach as it can to describe in law what actually goes on in the real world. Um, I I don't think that's going to happen here um, because of the, uh, certainly among the securities regulators, the the generalized disdain for for crypto market structure. Um, I think that the, 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 the approach is much more likely to be there's a new sheriff in town, then, oh, just tell me what works uh, and we'll codify it. So I think, it's, I think it is going to be pretty jarring and that, and that, uh, that jarring will um, mostly be uh, felt, unfortunately, by the smaller exchanges who just don't have the budgets to throw walls of lawyers in front of the problems um, and maybe more aptly don't have the budgets to put lawyers in seats with regulators to try to anticipate or to help educate and do all of the things that unfortunately uh, money can do. So it's a far cry from where we were in 2013 for better or for worse, but the world changes and we have to keep up with it. Yeah, and it does seem like the industry as a whole is growing up a little bit, especially with all the sort of institutional adoption and things, particularly on the Bitcoin side. So, you know, the more, I suppose, large institutions are involved, potentially 
well, the more attention we get, which is good and bad. Yeah. Um, That's right. Awesome. Well, we are out of time, Marco. I, man, this has been fun and I could probably go on for another two hours asking you questions, but I appreciate you coming on and talking about Kraken and the charter and all, all things crypto. Absolutely, Bully. I'm a big fan uh, of your tweets, especially when um, they are denigrating me and other people like me. Those are my favorite. Well, uh, I'll focus on those coming. then. <laughs> keep them coming. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a blast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Marco. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.